These meditations are ones of arriving, so let this be that in a very conscious way, where you feel the sitting posture and just close your eyes and sense mindfully settling in, letting your weight down. That's a trick. Just kind of let your weight down, which isn't agreeing to be here. For many of us, part of that means relaxing out of thought forms and just scanning for what's true in a more immediate and sensory way. There might be pleasantness, there might be unpleasantness. And part of waking up is that willingness just to open to however it is. It takes a certain degree of courage. You might stabilize the mind a bit by feeling the rhythm of the breath, letting that help you to collect, to arrive. Let your intention be to befriend experience. In some way, bowing to or acknowledging what's arising right now, sensations, the breath, sounds, heat, thoughts, with a warm or caring heart, just meeting what's there with friendliness, In Buddhist meditation, this combination of being aware of what's happening and friendly towards it are the ingredients that allow us to become free, mindfulness and compassion. So it's in this spirit we'll open our class today together with the chanting of Om, which is the mantra of connectedness, of oneness, kind of a universal wakefulness. Take a few full breaths and then we'll chant together. Let's inhale deeply. sensations of chanting and the sound that you're hearing. Inhale again. 
Please feel free. I'd like to welcome you all to our third time together. This is out of four weeks. Um, and just to say that I'm curious about the difference you might have noticed in the first three chantings of Om and the last three. Did anyone notice a difference for you? Just raise your hands if you did. You can raise your hands and not say anything. Did you notice a difference? Did anyone not notice the difference? I wanted to see if everybody was raising their hands. <laughs> Yesterday, I, uh, I'm in addition to a clinical psychologist, I'm officially a minister in the Buddhist religion, and I led some people in marriage ceremony. And um, they spent a lot of time before the ceremony putting together their vows, and it was really beautiful because you could feel that they weren't being mechanical, that they were really speaking from a very deep place. And the common kind of theme of their vows was to live their moments together wholeheartedly, mindfully, bringing a fullness of being into the moment. And I find for myself with chanting, which is really, uh, sound current is in every spiritual faith, every religion I've ever encountered. Um, that we can either do it in a kind of mechanical way and still have thoughts going on and not be there fully, or it can, like anything, become this practice of arriving to really pay attention to the sound, to the sensations. The weeks that we've been together, we're progressively opening the field of what we're paying attention to, of what we're bringing uh, this wholehearted presence to. And we started the first week with this mindfulness of the body, the breath and the body, which we come back to every single week because it's the foundation of foundations, you know, coming back to this body. And our practice for the first week was to learn to just keep coming back, to come back to the breath. And sometimes when you can't find the breath, come back to the full sensation of the body. And for those of you that weren't here, um, or if you've missed it at all, this mindfulness bell is a wonderful, wonderful invention, actually. It's a way of kind of calling our attention back to what is here now. So letting it be a way of checking in. Just feel your body. 
See how quickly you can bring a presence back into the moment, and we'll be using the bell again and again through this afternoon's session and our last one. The first week, coming back to the body and the breath. Last week, we expanded our domain to explore emotions, which, as I mentioned at the end of the class, we could be spending the rest of the decade or century on. Well, not the century, that's too quick. It's an area that's so sticky and so intense for so many of us that it's really um, basic to any spiritual waking up is befriending and becoming intimate with our emotional life. For most of us, we're either lost and possessed by emotions or we're kind of in some numbed out or aversive denial and pushing them away. And in either of those modes, it's not friendly. If we're possessed, we've forgotten the fullness of who we are. So last week was a little on how to recognize all the thinking and the obsessing and keep coming back to where emotions live in the body because there's no healing unless we experience fully what's true. And part of that fullness is the body. Everything registers in these bodies. Now some of you might have noticed last week that by coming into this bodily awareness, it felt near to traumatizing. And I won't ask for a hand raise on this, but it can be really intense. And a few people said it felt like a therapy session. And to say that um, waking up in our emotional life is not some separate thing than spiritual awakening. That befriending and becoming compassionate towards this these different weather systems is absolutely necessary if we're to feel whole and if we're to be able to be intimate with each other. But it needs to be done gradually. So I'm going to kind of encourage those of you that feel like you've got some intensity inside that you don't have a readiness to be with fully when I say open to the experience in your body to be, bring a sense of carefulness. If it feels like too much, go back to just feeling your breath or listening to sounds. And if in your day-to-day life you feel flooded by feelings, it's not always helpful to open to everything all at once. That can be just re-traumatizing. What makes meditation healing in regard to emotion is that we re-experience the weather systems we've experienced all our life, but with a larger sense of heart, with a larger and wakeful mind. So there's a reframing. It gets integrated and rejoins the flow of our experience in a new and different way. But that can take time. So in a way, in these intros, you're getting a lot of information, and you might only be able to use pieces at a time. Now, today, We're going to be going more deeply into how to work with these thoughts that we live in so much. And I think I might have brought this. Oh, good, okay. This is Tolku Ergen Rinpoche, a wonderful Tibetan teacher. The stream of thoughts surges through the mind, often called black diffusion. This state is an unwholesome pattern of dissipation frequently in which there's no knowledge whatsoever about 
who is thinking, where the thoughts come from, or where the thought disappears. One has not even caught the scent of awareness. There are only unwholesome thought patterns operating, ones that limit our sense of who we are in the world is, so that one is totally and mindlessly carried away by one thought after another. This is definitely not the path of liberation. Usually it's the first and biggest recognition when we start intending to pay attention is how lost we are in thought. Now, the most common denominator of all spiritual paths is this cherishing of being states. I mean, if you really look into what is it that uh, seekers have reached for over the centuries, it's not to have better ideas about things, but rather it's looking and touching the sacred or the timeless, the mystical essence of life, which is beyond what any concept can present. And each spiritual path has a particular set of practices that help to connect us with what is timeless, to open us out of the smallness of our minds. Singing, chanting, yoga, meditation. I think of it in terms of remembering that it's our our nature to feel love and feel wakefulness and understanding, but we get caught in kind of a fearful pursuit of something more and something different. So spiritual practice is really a practice of remembering. Oops, I've been lost, coming back again. It's kind of our inner mindfulness bell. Reconnecting. Seeing if you can just come back this moment. I think one of the most important questions for each of us is to look at our lives and ask, what is it that we're currently doing, quotes unquotes, that inclines us towards more freedom? You know, what is it? What are the relationships, the activities, the ways of moving, thinking, doing, that help wake us up out of the dream? We get so habitual, each one of us, we get so habituated in our ways of moving through the day that it really is like waking up out of a dream, waking up out of the thoughts we're so identified with. And it's not so easy, because in the West, thinking is worship, not challenged. And what I'd like to explore today is not a challenge that says there's anything bad about thinking. In fact, it's as much a part of who we are as the blood that moves through our veins. But to start seeing through a thought-dominated reality. It's, thinking's been described as as similar as the production of enzymes or secretions of the brain, that the mind by nature generates thoughts. It's part of who we are, it's necessary, it's contributed to our well-being, it's a way of expressing our creativity, communing with each other, it's one of the links. It's what makes civilization possible. But some of you might know that Gandhi, when he was asked what he thought about Western civilization, he said, it would be a good idea. (laughs) You get it? (laughs) Civilization, societies that are 
based on mental constructs and not what is treasured by the heart end up being violent and falling. So, thinking can be helpful in problem solving, in healing, in all sorts of domains, but it's not the source of our love or of our wisdom. And when it's mistaken to be the source, we get attached to it and then we don't find the real thing. You cannot think your way to freedom or to happiness or to love. Now I'll read you, this is Emerson's way of putting it, which is really poetic. Within each of us is the soul of the whole. When it breaks through our intellect, it is genius. When it breathes through our will, it is virtue. When it flows through our affections, it is love. The soul of the whole is who we are, and thoughts are just one arena that the wisdom of this kind of source flows through, but it's not the source itself. So mindfulness of thinking, this next foundation that we're exploring of mindfulness, is a way to begin seeing that, to begin recognizing how thoughts seduce us into thinking this is the reality. It's like mistaking the finger that points to the moon for being the moon. Words, thoughts, concepts are just images, sound bites that represent things. They're not it. Think of somebody you love right now. Just get an image of them and remind yourself of a little about them. And then sense who you really are, just your experiencing self this moment, and try to intuit who they really are beyond your images, your historical movies about that person. This being you have ideas about is an experiencing, vibrating awareness just like you. Mindfulness of thinking is to not reject or be lost in either, the movies we have. Not to believe that they are the actuality. Mindfulness of thinking is to be able to remember again and again, reconnect again and again with the soul of the whole, with a sense of sacred presence. So again, As we start seeing thoughts and our, our practice is to notice them and just go, oh, thinking, thinking, just start to name that it's happening. As we start doing that and then sensing, okay, what's really true right now? If this is just a movie that's running, what's the energy behind the movie in the projector or whatever you want, way you want to think of it? What we find is that behind all thinking, there's some dissatisfaction, some wanting, some fearing and that we actually use thoughts to control our experience. 
we do a whole lot of planning and worrying. And it's part of our evolution. I mean, it's really part of human evolutionary development to use our mental capacities in service of survival. Avoiding what can go wrong, trying to make things go right. It's our primary tool to have that happen. Now the truth is that we can control and manipulate just so much. We can definitely rig the small things, but the big stuff, as the Buddha described it, aging, sickness, and death, we can't think our way through them. This is one of my favorite stories that illustrates this. One day when the sultan was in his palace at Damascus, a beautiful youth who was his favorite rushed into his presence, crying out in great agitation that he must fly at once to Baghdad and imploring leave to borrow his majesty's swiftest horse. The sultan asked why he was in such a haste to go to Baghdad. Because, the youth answered, as I passed through the gardens of the palace just now, death was standing there, and when he saw me, he stretched out his arms as if to threaten me, and I must lose no time in escaping from him. The young man was given leave to take the sultan's horse and fly, and when he was gone, the sultan went down indignantly into the garden and found death still there. How dare you make threatening gestures at my favorite? He cried, but death, astonished, answered, I assure your majesty, I did not threaten him. I only threw up my arms in surprise at seeing him here because I have a tryst with him tonight in Baghdad. There's a lot we can think through. There's a lot of problem solving to be done. And learning to be mindful of thinking does not mean that we put that aside in any way. But there's so much weather, there's so much of this life's natural unfolding we can't control, that until we learn to wake up out of our habitual trance, we don't really discover a sense of immediacy, our presence. Now most religions and cosmology have been described as an inoculation against the mystery. In a way, there's a kind of a cosmology that's put out to try to make us feel better or sense how, give, give a reality that we can get comfortable with. And we live in that worldview. And they actually, having a worldview that we live in means that we're not living in the immediacy and the reality of what is. So we have ideas about how it all is rather than an ongoing connection with our senses. So that's our training. There's a wonderful Sufi story about Mullah Nasruddin, who's this kind of, uh, he's a, a jokester saint type, kind of plays the fool and the wise man at once. And in this one, uh, a friend is going to see the Mullah, and he goes up, his, up the pathway to his house and knocks on his door and, and asks him if he can borrow his donkey. And the mullah says, oh, I'm really sorry, you can't, I've already loaned him out, maybe another time. And as the guy's leaving, he hears a braying in the back, you know. So he comes back and he's really indignant and said, hey, I thought you loaned out the donkey, I just heard him bray. And the mullah, equally indignant, well, are you going to believe the donkey or me? <laughs> no. What do we believe? Do we believe our ideas about how it is, or do we have the remembering to really check out what is true. 
Some of you might know that Einstein described his whole kind of realization of um, all of his cosmic understandings, and he said that it wasn't from thinking. He said that he actually was, it was from a meditation, and between meditation and dreams, kind of a sense of how it all is. And then the next five years, he spent using his very brilliant mind to put it into language and conceptual form so it could be communicated. But the initial aha didn't come from that. He writes, how do I work? I grope. I think that's great. (laughs) Now the most fundamental set of thoughts that we operate off of and that we're very invested in are our thoughts about who we are, who we are in this world. And as I mentioned last week, those are created out of the expectations and messages of our parents and our culture. And we adopt them. So we go around with a story about who we are, how we're falling short, what we need to do to not fall short, what it's going to take to have another person like us, and onward and onward. For most our sense of self, our story about self, is very fear-based. It's got a lot of what's wrong, what's not good enough, unworthiness. And we actually will hold on to that, even when there's evidence otherwise because it's more familiar and there's something dangerous about putting down our guard and feeling okay about ourselves. This is another favorite story. This is by Ed Brown, who's a Zen monk and also a cook. When I first started cooking at Tassajara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe and try variations, but nothing worked. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Now, growing up, I had made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick and the other from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick biscuits, you added milk to the mix, then blobbed the dough in spoonfuls onto the pan. You didn't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You wrapped the can on the corner of the counter and it popped open. You know those, right? (laughs) Then you twisted the can open more, put the pre-made biscuits on a pan, and baked them. I really like those Pillsbury biscuits. Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like. Compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury? (laughs) Leave it to Beaver? (laughs) People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, eating one after another, but to me these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. Finally one day came a shifting into place, an awakening. Not right compared to what? Oh my word, I had been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. (laughs) Then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. They were weedy, flaky, buttery, earthy, sunny, real, as Rilke's sonnet proclaims. They were incomparably alive, present, vibrant. In fact, much more satisfying than any memory. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating, these moments when you realize your life is just fine as it is. Only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, perfectly packaged product made it seem insufficient. Trying to produce a biscuit, a life, with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger was so frustrating. Then savoring, actually tasting the present moment of experience, How much more complex and multifaceted, how unfathomable, 
a thought, a feeling, ants crawling on the ground in the sunlight. As Zen students, we spent years trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew what the BizQuick Zen student looked like. <laughs> Calm, buoyant, cheerful, energetic, deep, profound. Our motto, as one of my friends said, was, looking good. <laughs> We've all done it, trying to look good as a husband, wife, or parent, trying to attain perfection, trying to make Pillsbury biscuits. Well, to heck with it, I say, wake up and smell the coffee. How about some good old home cooking, the biscuits of today? Handle each ingredient with sincerity and wholeheartedness. The results will take care of themselves. Savor them. It's part of waking up is realizing the story we have about ourselves, how we're falling short, what we're comparing to. For most that I know, it's pretty chronic the sense of not okay right now. You can even scan this moment. Is this moment okay? Is who you are this moment okay? I have a friend who whenever he's feeling bad, he immediately checks to see what belief or story about a deficient, threatened self he's operating off of or believing in. And he told me this years ago, and I found it really useful because sometimes the not okay can be really this subtle flavor of getting grim or just kind of tightening against the world. And I know that if I really check, what I'll find when I start getting like that is that in some way I've turned against myself. I'm holding something against myself. I blew it in some way. What we believe in ends up causing us a lot of pain. Some of you know this, I might have mentioned another week, this little boy that says, Mommy, pretend you're surrounded by 1,000 hungry tigers. What would you do? The mother thinks for a while, well, I don't know, darling, what would you do? The little boy says, stop pretending, you know? Well, we have these movies we live in, and they have a huge effect on our every moment. We have a movie of what's going to go wrong and who's not going to like us or what we need to do to be okay every day. So it becomes important to sense what are some of the core beliefs for some of us. You know, if I get too happy, something bad will happen. I run into that a lot because somewhere as we were a child, in a moment of exuberance, something bad happened. Pleasure got got followed by some punishment. So we start memorizing that it's dangerous to really open to full pleasure. That I don't deserve anything unless I've worked really hard. That nothing I do is really good enough. If people really knew me, they wouldn't like me. I'm basically selfish. That comes up when we teach the metta, our loving-kindness meditation. There's this question of, you know, consider what you appreciate about yourself or consider a good deed you've done recently. And sometimes people can say what are officially good deeds, but they say, but you know, I was really doing it because I wanted to feel good about myself. I'm basically selfish. How many of us feel that one? That if I express pain or fear, it's really my fault. That means something's wrong with me. If I experience emotional difficulty, something's wrong with me. 
I learned a lot about that one. I mentioned to you one of the times here when I did a six-week retreat and it was filled with being physically sick. And I realized that not only was I feeling physically sick, but I was getting more and more depressed. And it wasn't just because of the pain. It was this belief in my mind that being physically sick meant that something was wrong with me. That was the more deep suffering of the experience. It meant that in some way I wasn't so spiritual, I didn't know how to take care of myself, or I just wasn't doing my life right. How many of us, when we don't feel well, in some way feel bad about ourselves for not feeling well? So when we begin to see that, see the belief, see the thought, there's a little less identification. And that is the whole theme of mindfulness. As soon as you can recognize what's going on, a little less of your sense of who you are is caught inside it. It's like, again, the plane that's flying through the sky. And when it's inside the cloud, there's a sense like that's everything. But when you keep on flying and see the cloud and include the cloud and let the cloud be, but realize also who we are is a lot more than that. If we can see the thoughts, we're not driven by them so much. We can see in our culture that um, because thinking is so worshipped and because these attitudes of you should be accomplishing this and if you're needy it means this are so deep that it's very easy to get lost in that mentality. There's two main kinds of suffering from being lost in thoughts. One is that if you're lost in thoughts, you're somewhere else. You're not here living right now. That's one. I'll tell you the second in a moment. See if you can just drop everything. Sense the flavor of the thoughts that are there right now, or if they're not, what's true right now. When we're in conceptual mind, we're thinking about the past, we're thinking about the future. Continuing to meditate, one of these sutras, do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. Looking deeply at life as it is in this very moment, the mind dwells in stability and freedom. One suffering from being lost in thoughts, that we're just not here. We can't really connect with our children and our partners and the trees and the flowers and this life if we're off in thoughts. Now part two, the other suffering, is that when we believe the thoughts, when we believe what the thoughts are telling us, it keeps us separated and limited. If we believe in our thoughts, we're believing in a separate self, we're believing that we're endangered by others, we're believing that we have to do X, Y, and Z to be okay, it keeps us small. One writer says, the world is divided into people who think they are right. That's it. (laughs) Open your eyes. I don't think you're fully here. Yeah. 
think of it. If everybody's going around in the future and the past, how can we really be together if we're all in our own bubbles? Let me see if I have this thing that I love. This Wes Nisker wrote a book um, called Buddha's Nature, and I wanted to read you something. Oh, good, I have it. Now listen to this. Next time you walk down a crowded city street, imagine that you are suddenly given the power to see into the workings of people's minds. People are split. Their bodies are walking while their minds are talking. (laughs) If their imagery and thoughts were to become visible and audible to you as you pass them by, you would find most people absorbed in thinking are thinking about what they will do when they arrive at their next destination or what has occurred at the last one, or else having a good fantasy or mulling over a current or future life issue of finance, romance, or family life. You would be hearing a great babble of thinking, almost none of it having anything to do with the act of walking down the street. The thoughts may begin to sound to you like non-sequiturs coming from a parade of schizophrenics. (laughs) But imagine it. I mean, if you really could sense all the bubbles of thinking going around, I mean, all these little worlds we live in, and it's not until there's some capacity for each of us to recognize that's happening and open up some that we can really connect. The Buddha says there's great freedom when we cease to cherish our beliefs. He also says those with strong opinions go around bothering one another. (laughs) Isn't it true, though? (laughs) Where's there room for each other if we're just totally living out our strong ideas about things? So the Buddhist monks, the Zen priests, say this way, take the world of concepts in two hands and drop it. And then we get the bell again. Try it. Dropping it means dropping in. The practice of waking up out of thoughts is really a practice of letting go. It's not a practice of pushing away. It's letting go of the grip or the trance and opening back into what's real. In a way, letting go, the words letting go by themselves need to be letting go into. Letting go into what's real. You can open your eyes. I'm going to read you yet another story. This is Ajahn Sumedho. One of my favorites, he's a, uh, from the Thai forest tradition, and this is on letting go. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. <laughs> That's most of us. You should simplify your meditation practice to just these words, letting go, rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Majjhimakaya and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand things or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. 
So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Let go, let go. And it's not easy. If thoughts are driven by wanting and fearing, letting go means opening to those feelings, the dissatisfaction, the uncomfortability, the insecurity, the mystery that's in our bodies and our hearts that we're actually trying to escape. We're using these thoughts to take refuge from them. So it's the last thing we want to do. We're very, very hooked on thinking out our thoughts and being identified with them. Another classic Zen story is of a man being chased by a tiger and he falls off a cliff and in, as in many Zen stories he's hanging onto the roots of a tree with a tiger above and craggy, jagged lo- rocks below. So in this story the man calls out, help, help, is anyone there? And he hears a response, yes. God? Yes. Is that you, God? Yes. Well, help me, I'll do anything. Okay, here's the one thing to do, let go. Is anyone else there? (laughs) It's the last thing we want to do. We really hold on tight. So how to release the grip of thinking? Because this really is the training. You're going to come back to it again and again. If you want to go deep in spiritual life, you can. And it'll be revisiting again and again this tendency of our body-mind to either hold on or push away and then relax, let go into what's true. Again and again, in some form, it's this mindfulness bell saying, come back, come back to what's sacred and present right here and now. So two ways we come back, two ways that we release the grip, relax the grip. One of them, concentration, which we're gonna be doing more of tonight, and you'll be doing probably as long as you practice awareness training techniques. Concentration is having some focus, some anchor. Now we've talked about having the anchor of the breath, either the inflow-outflow, or just following the breath out. You can use your whole body as an anchor. Right now you can just feel softening in the belly, and just feel your whole body sensation, and that's a way of coming back. It can be the breath, it can be your body, it can be sounds. If you just open the sense doors of hearing and just listen, that can be a pathway back. Sometimes it's words. So I use words a lot to coach myself to come back. But what we find is it takes a lot of forgiveness because we go away again and again and we keep having to be willing to check in again and again. St. Francis de Sales writes this. He says, it takes a cup of understanding, a barrel of love, and an ocean of patience. He says, bring yourself back to the point quite gently. And even if you do nothing during the whole of your time meditating, but bring your heart back a thousand times, though it went away, every time you brought it back, your time would be very well employed. We're developing a muscle of remembering, and it really is something every one of us can train in. It's not forcing the mind. It's not kicking out unpleasant thoughts. It's just remembering to be here as fully as we can this moment. Now, when the mind is very busy, 
and when we're really lost, we have to emphasize concentration. If you find yourself in a real whirlwind where you're just absolutely all over the place, coming back to the breath, coming back to feeling sensations in the body, to sound is the only way to have enough presence so then you can experience mindfulness, which is, what is this? What's really happening? So concentration and mindfulness go together. You need enough stability and quietness to have the recognition of mindfulness. We use the tool of noting. Thinking, thinking, come back to the body, and if you feel strong, whether like grief or angst or fear, to name things. Naming helps. But as I mentioned last week, not to use it as a club, oh, fear, fear, you know, get it away. But, ah, fear. Using the very tone of voice in the noting as a way of connecting more with what's happening. With thinking, if we can note it and name it and really get that we're thinking, you'll find you're not inside it so much. So let's explore that for a moment. Uh, Just sitting as you are. We're going to be sitting for a little bit of a longer stretch in a few minutes, so you can keep moving around if that helps. But just for now, think about the most challenging interaction you've had recently. It doesn't have to be something traumatizing, but a challenging interaction, and, and like a movie, remember what happened. As well as you can. See, hear, remember. And then include in your awareness the sense that you're with 50 other people and each person is remembering a difficult situation. And sense what happens when you enlarge your perspective to include what's going on in the room right now. Thinking, remembering. And then just drop into the moment and sense what's the flavor of your experience right now. Underneath all the thoughts or beyond all the thoughts, just what's true. Sensing the difference between being in the movie of remembering and the actuality of right now. These sounds, this breath, learning to let these thoughts come and go, letting go back into this moment again and again. And there's a certain quality of insight when we're not lost inside thoughts. We begin to see that the distractions are mind's natural movement, that thoughts are the way minds move. And like dreams, they're also insubstantial. If you can think a thought and then go, oh, thinking, thinking, and open back to the moment, that thought no longer has a claim on you in terms of having substance. You can also sense that they arise uninvited. There's no self-deciding to think. No one owns the thoughts. A good friend wrote a book, Thoughts Without a Thinker. There's no thinker, there's just thoughts happening. At retreats, sometimes we suggest that students imagine that all their thoughts are happening in the person in front of them. 
you know, just because it gives you that perspective, that bigger space that it's all happening in. We believe in what we're thinking and we get very contracted and small. It's said that angels fly because they take themselves lightly. Mindfulness of thinking can reconnect us with the whole, with the ocean, with this whole, the soul of the whole. Open your eyes again and feel free to stretch your legs if you'd like. So I'll give you a few more instructions on working with thoughts, then we'll um, be sitting together. Feel free to stretch your legs mindfully right now, stretch your bodies, and see how much as you stretch you can stay with the awareness of sensations and the breath. Notice when thoughts arise and just go, oh, thinking, thinking, and see if you can come back to your body. We'll take about a minute stretching, breathing, feeling your body. Okay, come sitting again. So when we find ourselves lost in thought, one part of the practice is this recognition, this noting. Okay, thinking, thinking. It's kind of like with your awareness you're drawing a frame around the picture. See, you're not totally lost in it. And if it's not charged, if the thinking's just kind of like coming and going, then just come back to the breath. Come back to your body. Come back to listening to sounds. Just come back. Okay? That's if the thought is not charged. But what happens if there's really a sense of compelling thoughts? If you're really riveted on something? When thoughts are charged, which means there's strong wanting or strong fearing underneath, then our practice is different. We do not come back to the breath. Rather, thinking, planning, worrying, fantasizing. You can name the thinking process. Sometimes naming it with a little more precision wakes you up a little more out of its trance. So that's something to, you don't have to use a thesaurus and figure out exactly what's going on, but just to notice what kind of thinking can help. But after you've named thinking, thinking, pause. Sense what's asking for attention in your body, in your heart. There's always going to be some wanting or fearing if the thoughts are compelling. Always. By not paying attention to what's there, by pushing away a part of ourselves, we disconnect. We're not fully present. There's no possibility of insight, of knowing who we are, and of healing unless we can recognize that we're lost in thinking and come into the body and feel where the energy is. So in this second approach, when there's charge, thinking, thinking, 
And then pause. Sense what's asking for acceptance, inclusion. It's not cognitive, okay? It's just feel into your body, sense what's there. Now, we'll sit a little together and then see how it goes for you. If you will, just to come cross-legged or in some way that's upright. Begin by establishing a sense of presence right with the first foundation, bodily awareness. The two qualities of attention, to be soft, relaxed, but also clear what's true now. Sense in the body if there's anywhere to let go a little more that's possible. So there's a little more ease. You might soften in the shoulders some. Sense the hands and let them rest in a very easy, relaxed way. You can let the awareness abide in the hands for a moment so that you begin to really feel the sensations, the tingling, the temperature. Realizing when we bring awareness anywhere in our body, we wake up some to what's happening. Let the chest be open and then soften in the belly. Sense that your awareness can drop deep down into your body, feeling sensations from within sensations. If you soften the belly and are aware of some emotional experience, to notice that. Letting the weight down, arriving in these bodies. We anchor our attention to this vibrant, vital realness, embodied awareness. Feeling the movement of the breath and letting that be even a more precise pathway into presence. You might feel the breath at the nose, the inflow, outflow there. Or you might feel it at the back of the throat, the chest, the abdomen. It doesn't matter so much where you rest the attention as you pick a place And let that be a way of coming home, a refuge, a place to remember and relax back into. The simplicity of the breath, or if it helps, the more comprehensive sense of bodily sensations. Know that you're here. You might include in your awareness the sounds and sense the space that's around you so that all the senses are awake. Make yourself at home in this moment, wakefully.
sensing the specific focus or anchor of attention as the middle of your meditation, the center. Might be the breath at the nose, just the out-breath. And rest in that as a raft might rest in the seas, just feeling the movement of the breath. Let go some more, just relax a little more. But be clear, noticing what's happening. We let the breath, or the primary anchor, be our place of rest. But then if something strong comes up, some unpleasantness or pleasantness that calls our attention in the body or mind, our practice is to include that with a respectful attention, as if you were bowing to whatever arises with a kind heart. If it's physical discomfort, we try to stay still if we can, but if it becomes real disturbing, then to bring a same mindfulness to slowly moving and adjusting our posture, and that's quite fine. Just not to react to unpleasantness reflexively. Be aware. Concentrating on the breath, our sounds, or whatever you're concentrating on, but making room for what arises. Naming what arises if that's helpful. When you find the mind drifting into thought form, as soon as you become aware of that, just name it. Thinking, planning, remembering. It's not a compelling kind of thought, just come back to the breath. Come back here now, without any judgment. If the thoughts or thinking is compelling, it's a sign of an insistent visitor that wants attention. Remember this guest house to greet each with a kind heart sends into the body where there might be knots or fear or ache or pressure with as much gentleness as we can to include this life with gentleness Over these next few minutes, the single sound of the bell will be just a reminder to let go of thinking, to let go into what's real and what's present. 
Noticing what's true, a gentle naming, hmm, pleasant, unpleasant, thinking, sad, afraid, tight. And then just opening to experience what is. See what it means to make friends with the life of this moment. Just to say yes to what is. It might be restless, uncomfortable, peaceful, happy. Unconditional friendliness towards the life of the moment is our pathway to freedom.
Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. Looking deeply at life as it is in this very moment, embracing this life, the heart and mind dwell in freedom. So please feel free to stretch your legs if you haven't felt free so far. <laughs> I'd like to take a few minutes now and just check in with you, see how you're doing, and if there's any questions or just reporting what you're experiencing, please jump in. So anyone. Could you all hear that? That as you sit for a longer period, and this is the power of staying and not doing it quite so short, you actually begin to see how it's easier to be lost in thought. Because it takes you, if you're feeling physical discomfort, it's easier to take refuge in thought and not have to sit and feel it fully. And then the question would come, for many, which is, so why suffer? I mean, why throw yourself into the physicality that's so uncomfortable? So I'll answer that. <laughs> so I'll answer it some, um, which is that there's some things we could we could you know drift off in fantasies or get lost in thought for a lot of our life because of that. But there's always going to be a fear in our body and our heart as long as we know we're pulling away from what's happening. So there's no real deep sense of well-being or connection if our habit is to leave, and it won't only be that we leave physical pain at certain acute moments, it'll be that any discomfort in a relationship or with an emotion we don't like, anything we don't like will pull away from. And it's as the Taoists say, we live with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And our freedom is when we can embrace life, not try to regulate it and pull away from this, but not from that. And I know you weren't recommending it, but it brought that out of me, so... So yeah, so we're training to, even though it's uncomfortable, just notice the discomfort and see what happens when we don't move but stay present. And there's actually a shift in the experience that shifts from suffering to just the comings and goings of sensations when we stop fighting with our experience. So thank you for that. Others? Um, Well, I think there's sometimes Sure. 
So for you, when the emotions are strong, you, you can feel it, but you can't kind of distinguish, is this, you know, happiness or grief or sadness or this or that? You don't have Obviously. a... I gave you polarities, that's, and that's fine. That's the way it is. Sometimes we, partly it's how we were brought up, whether our parents mirrored back and taught us to name certain things. Um, it's not so important that you accurately label it as recognize, okay, feeling emotion. <laughs> and maybe pleasant or unpleasant, you know, if it's strong, it's useful to know, because there's a tendency with unpleasant to go like this, and if it's pleasant, we're kind of leaning forward. But what's most important is knowing that it's happening and intentionally including an opening to what's happening. So as long as you're doing that, don't worry about the distinguishing. That's something that if it's useful, you can end up pursuing you know, in therapy or in another setting. For now, it's to be kind towards what's happening and know that it's happening. Oh, I'm looking at you, yes. <laughs> I'm nearsighted too, but we're looking at each other. <laughs> yeah. So when do you drop the problem-solving, or when do you allow yourself to problem-solve both? Right. I mean, how far do you take yeah. this dealing with the situation? Okay. No matter, okay. person, yeah, no matter what the situation, if problem-solving is preceded by, are grounded in a quality of mindfulness and compassion, it's going to be better problem-solving. So the first thing to say is, and that takes a continuous reconnecting. It's not like you say, okay, I felt compassionate and mindful, now I'm going to go and, you know, it's like you have to keep coming back to a very genuine sense of, I'd like to make this different, but this moment, a willingness to feel how it is. Um, the 
the best analogy I can give is, you know, if you look at the some of the great spiritual political leaders like the Dalai Lama or Mahatma Gandhi, that it's that all their action is grounded in a very real and visceral sense of of kindness and clarity. So to keep cultivating that and coming back to that is the ground of any problem solving. If we if we're doing that, then it becomes natural to try to relieve suffering and be helpful in the world. This is actually a very activist, engaged spiritual path. It's um, it's not passive. Go off into a cave, although you might want to for a while. <laughs> you know, we all need to go into nature or into solitude or just to replenish. But it's very much based on being real with what is feeling fully what is, and then responding with as much intelligence and heart as we can. So just to ground your problem solving in that. And then and then we go ahead and problem solve and kind of have the wisdom to see if it's not making a difference or if it is, you know. That um, I, I'd be mind reading to try to speak for you. I can just say, just to keep your commitment and your intention as sincere as possible. I, I use a lot of intentionality before I teach or before I talk to my son often or before I see clients or before anything where I want to really make sure I'm connected with what's true. I'll sense, okay, what is really important about this? And you know what's important for me usually has to do with that it's honest, that there's connection, that there's realness. Ramdas, since he was, um, many of you know, Ramdas had a stroke about a year and a half ago, and it's been very interesting to people in the kind of spiritual or new age movement to follow how how did this guy deal with a stroke? Because this is a big time thing, and in a way, it's really he's uh, brought it's been in service of being more. Um, of a real human, and he describes how now, since his stroke, what he really his intention is to have a moment of truth with each being he's with. And I love that this sense of whether you call it a moment of truth or a moment of of connection of heart. That that if your intention's there for that to happen, if your intention's to come from a compassionate place, that's the best shot you can give it. <laughs> then you just play it out. So use intentionality. Mm-hmm. When you say back and forth, Linda, back from what to forth to what? that tells me you're actually doing this quite skillfully because that's what happens is you'll be thinking and you'll go oh, thinking and then you'll feel sensations and the next thing you know you're thinking and it's just the world will keep playing itself out you will become more and more skilled at sensing it as kind of this dance that's happening versus getting lost into it getting seduced in all the time and that's the difference is that it um it becomes more and more a sense of really cherishing all these life energies playing out but but being awake to it, not being lost in the dream. So just like that, it'll go back and forth all over. Same thing happens to me all the time. Yeah. 
And to me, what you're saying is like, you know, praise the Lord, that's fabulous. <laughs> because that's the major pitfall in spiritual practice as well as our personal life, is that we double take on what's going on and evaluate it as not okay. And if we do that, if we're judgmental and perfectionistic in other stuff, we're going to bring it to spiritual practice and tie ourselves up in knots. And the hope is that we can see even that. Oh, judging. Okay, judging. And then feel the the pain or the sadness or the fear that's underneath judging and include that in mindfulness. So for sure, our sittings are always imperfect in the sense of if perfection means having a totally peaceful, blissed-out experience, (laughs) yeah. Um, Jack Kornfield, who's a a friend and a teacher uh, on the West Coast, says it this way, he says, you know, just commit yourself to sitting, and he says, put your butt on the cushion and take what you get, (laughs) you know, (laughs) just that. (laughs) And that's the way it is, to not rate it. I've found that sometimes for me, the sittings that are least pro forma right are the ones that in some way I've kind of befriended on a deeper level what's going on. Yeah, thank you for that. The instructions for this week, you have two weeks now. Just want to remind you that next week is um, holiday, are to take the different pieces. And if it gets complicated, if you feel like you're confused, just see if you can practice coming back again and again from whatever to a sense of your body and breath. If you feel like you can explore it, to include as well as you can the realms of emotions, to be start to name thinking and as well as possible sense if it's a light thought, come back to the breath. If it's not, feel into your body and sensations. Let the mindfulness bell be internalized so that if there's anything that shifts in these four weeks, that there's more moments during your day, and we're not just talking formal sitting, where there's some place in you that goes, oh yeah, come back, be here. It's precious, because then we have more moments of sacred presence. And there's more real intimacy with what's going on in our lives. Doing, keep doing that inside. Okay, we'll close with just a, a brief sitting together, and then that's it. Just let go. 
See if you can let go and let go and let go. Entrusting yourself to the waves of this moment, to the mystery of this moment. You don't know what's going to happen in these next moments. So let go. It takes a certain courage to open out of thoughts and to include this life with unconditional friendliness. like to close in the way that we opened with the chanting and see if you can explore it from the vantage point now of presence, of how much you can let go into sound and sensation. We'll chant Om three times. Please inhale deeply. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.